Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. These are the words of God. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will, per- will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the example of the Philippian church and how you promised to finish what you started. That you who began a good work in Galilee, in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, have caused that same message of salvation to reach us here in Centralia, Washington in 2022, the year of our Lord. And so we ask now that you would bless the preaching and hearing of your word, now and for many years to come. For we ask in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's one of the great joys and privileges of my life to preach God's word to you this morning, and not as a guest preacher, but as your pastor in covenant fellowship with you. And so um, I thank you for your prayers Uh, your hospitality, your calling me here, and I look uh, forward to seeing God's work among us. As I uh, considered uh, what book to begin preaching to you, I found myself drawn to uh, this uh, letter of Philippians. Uh, And the reasons for this uh, may become more evident uh, in the weeks ahead as we work through the book, Uh, but the simple reason I chose to start here is because uh, Philippians is Paul's uh, happiest letter. Let's start there. (laughs) Philippians is full of prayers and joy and thanksgiving. There is a sweetness in this letter that you do not find in Paul's other letters, say to uh, Galatians or Corinthians or Romans. And the reason for this is that the Philippians had given Paul unwavering spiritual and financial support, as he says in verse 5, from the first day until now. Paul and the Philippians had had fellowship in the gospel for 12 years, ever since he had planted that church on his second missionary journey, which we can read about in Acts 16. Now, uh, if you remember what happens in Acts uh, 16, Uh, The year is 49 AD, so 19 years after Christ's ascension, and Paul sees a vision in the night. He is ministering in Troas, which is uh, near the ancient and famous city of Troy. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with Homer, if you read the Iliad or the Odyssey, talking about that, that Troy, Uh, he's ministering there. Uh, Timothy has just joined him. Silas and Luke are with him. And Paul sees in a vision a man asking him, come over into Macedonia and help us. Luke goes on in Acts 16 verses 10 to 12 saying this, 
And after Paul had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, which is an island, and the next day to Neapolis, which is a port in Greece, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. So according to this vision that Paul has, there were already believers, there were already God-fearing Gentiles in uh, Philippi, and one of them is uh, this woman named Lydia. Uh, This is similar to what we see earlier in Acts 10 with Cornelius. Remember, Cornelius has a vision and, uh, you know, he doesn't just get the gospel to him right now. He is supposed to go find this, this Peter apostle guy who's going to preach to him. So you have something similar here. Someone that already knows the God of Israel fears the God of Israel. There was a lot of uh, missionary work done by Jews prior to the coming of Christ. And these are uh, sort of converts to the, the religion of the Jews, but they've not yet heard about this full gospel of this death and resurrection of Christ. So if you're to read on in Acts 16, you see that Paul meets this woman, Lydia. She's a merchant from Thyatira, which is a long ways away from where they are now. And she is baptized along with her household after hearing Paul speak. Also, while in Philippi, Paul casts out uh, a spirit of divination from a young damsel. And as a result of this, he and Silas are brought up on charges for uh, troubling the city, disturbing the peace. So uh, Paul does this good work. He delivers this young woman. And the reward is him and Silas get beat up and thrown into prison. Of course, this is just the setup for a great story wherein Paul and Silas are singing praises to God and the gates, uh, the the doors of the jail swing open, all the shackles uh, fall off of them and they are brought out. And the Philippian jailer, uh, it's uh, his life if these... uh, Uh, prisoners escape. He's about to kill himself, but instead Paul stops him and the Philippian jailer is converted and his whole household, and then they tend uh, to their wounds. So Paul's time in Philippi was eventful, but also uh, somewhat short-lived. He does not stay there long. But the bond with the church there took root and grew strong. Luke and Timothy stay behind to minister while Paul and Silas continue on to Thessalonica. And Lydia, who is likely a very wealthy woman, along with others in the church, give generously to support this gospel work. Paul says this in Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessities. So they are supporting Paul. They're really his first big supporters when no other church would. And so you can see why there is a certain sweetness in this letter that is not in the others. Churches, like people, are not 
all the same. There are troubled churches just like there are troubled people. There are delightful and generous churches just like there are delightful and generous people. Not all churches are created equal. And so Philippians is actually a thank you letter from Paul for the gift that he has just received from uh, the Philippians while he's imprisoned in Rome. So when Paul says that he thanks God for their, quote, fellowship in the gospel, this is what he's talking about. This is what fellowship in the gospel looks like. Generous love, prayer, and support of his work wherever he's at. So that's uh, just some of the background and context for uh, this letter, and uh, we'll touch more on this in future sermons. But uh, this morning, I want to just walk through these first seven verses together and make a few points of application. So let's walk through our text, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Uh, Paul's name in Greek is Paulos, and it means small or humble. And Timothy, or uh, you have here, at least in the King James, uh, Timotheus. You may wonder, I mean, this is a Timotheos. So you can think Theos, God, uh, and Timo or Tima is to honor. So Timothy, the name Timothy means uh, one who honors God or honoring God. Uh, so you have small and you have uh, honor God, these two men who call themselves servants of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you've read all of Paul's other letters, uh, you'll notice there's something missing here. Does anyone notice what is missing in this opening verse that is in almost all of Paul's other letters? Anyone know? Doesn't say apostle. That's right. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Paul doesn't call himself an apostle here? He is an apostle. Everyone knows he's an apostle. Uh, But I think what is going on here is that Paul and the Philippians are sort of on a first name basis, so to speak, right? They have this level of intimacy, whereas in the other letters, he has to remind them, uh, you guys, I'm an apostle. I may not have been one of the 12, but Jesus appeared to me. And you read in Corinthians, Paul is constantly under attack. People are constantly saying, that Paul guy, he's not really an apostle because he wasn't really with Jesus during his ministry. So Paul has to go over and over again to tell them, I did not receive my gospel from men. No one taught it to me. Jesus Christ himself taught me this gospel and I am commissioned by him. He showed up to me. He commissioned me and, and I have that same authority. So you can imagine, uh, as uh, people are, they like to pit one guy against another, right? Is, is it Peter or are you a Paul guy, right? Is it Apollos or are you a Paul guy? And so Paul has to constantly remind them, I'm an apostle, but here he can drop that. There's a certain le- le- level of love and familiarity between Paul and the Philippians. So Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ. Now, What is a servant of Jesus Christ? Uh, Some translations might read slave or bondservant in Greek. This is douloi. And the idea here is that Paul and Timothy have become adopted sons in the household of God. That is what a bondslave or a servant uh, is under the Mosaic law. 
If you were to look in Exodus 21, you would see that we are given there some of the laws for servants or bond slaves. And the rule was that a Hebrew servant could serve for a maximum of six years, and then in the seventh year, he goes free. But it says this, If the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, that's stick something through his ear, piercing his ear, and he shall serve him forever. So this is uh, the ritual where a servant who, who could go free says, no, I want to stay here. And he's saying, I want to become a part of your household. The master wants him to as well. And so what they do, there is this ritual, uh, what you would call actually a circumcision of the ear, right? And it's, it's putting a hole in it and it's signifying the ear of the servant is now open to the master forever, okay? I had my ears uh, pierced when I was 18. I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> but I, I'm, I, my guess is the hole has not totally closed up. And these are tiny little, uh, this is with a needle, okay? Imagine uh, with an awl. I don't know how big that was, but it was probably a little bit bigger than this. So you, you get the symbolism. Your, your ear is opened up to the voice of the master. You belong to them, not as a slave anymore, but actually as an adopted son. This is the ritual for adoption in the Old Covenant. This is also what happens to us when we are converted to Christ. God opens our ear. He opens our ear to hear his voice. He calls us into his house and he adopts us, right? This is the, the theology of adoption in Scripture. So when you think servant, don't think like American slavery or something like that. It's not that kind of slave. This is someone with a, a job to do in the house of God that has this loving relationship with the master of the household. Uh, think about Jesus, how he is portrayed in Isaiah as the servant of the Lord or the suffering uh, servant. That is the kind of servant that we are to be. That is the kind of servant that Paul and Timothy are. Jesus is a son by nature, the eternal son, but all of us are sons by adoption. So these servants in God's house, Paul and Timothy, are writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, and the special attention or special mention of the bishops and deacons. And this is because it is the leadership who is going to be responsible for carrying out the things that Paul wants them to do in this letter. The bishops and the deacons must drive away dogs, false teachers. They must see that the women who helped Paul are taken care of. Uh, we see that in uh, chapter 4, verse 2. They must make sure that Timothy is warmly received when he arrives. Uh, chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 19. So uh, this opening verse, I know we can kind of just glide through it, but we need to remember uh, there's a reason the, the Holy Spirit inspired each of these words, and they are important uh, for us to know. So that's uh, verse 1, the to and the from for the letter. And then verse 2 moves into Paul's greeting. He says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here we have the standard apostolic greeting. And although grace and peace can sound like a tired Christian platitudes, they do not have to if we understand what is contained within them. Grace and peace are two goods that encompass everything because they signify Christ. John 1.17 says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14 says, Christ is our peace. And so when we say grace and peace to one another, and certainly when the Apostle Paul says it, he really means that he wishes unto you all the good in the world which is found in Jesus Christ. Do you guys know how the, the Hebrews greeted each other? Do you know the word for the, what, what is it? Shalom. shalom. Yeah. And shalom is this kind of, uh, you know, this freighted word that has this kind of rest to it, this joy, this peace to it. Uh, I'm taking right now a, a course on ancient Greek, and the way that my professor uh, greets us all is kaire or kairete. And, and this is uh, joy or rejoice. It's a command to rejoice. So uh, the two languages the scriptures were written in, there's just the standard greetings are so different than uh, American English, right? Does hello mean that, <laughs> right? So uh, rejoice, rejoice is the, the standard Greek greeting and shalom, the standard Hebrew greeting. And similarly, I think the Christian version is this. It's grace and peace to you, grace and peace unto you. All right, uh, moving into verses three and four, Paul says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, making requests with joy. Do you know what it's like to have just the thought of someone put a smile on your face? Or maybe you remember when you were falling in love. It's as if you kind of hover above the ground. It doesn't really matter what else is going on in the world. When you think about that person, joy springs forth in your heart and with it, thanksgiving for them. Well, this is sort of what Paul is experiencing for the Philippians. He loves this church. They are dear to him, and they are constantly in his thoughts and prayers and memory. You can imagine Lydia and her household tending to Paul and Silas's wounds after they are released from prison. You can imagine the Philippian jailer and his children telling stories about how when Paul and Silas praised the Lord, the doors of the prison flew open and everyone's shackles fell off. You can imagine the psalm sing attendance in Philippi after that. You can imagine the story being told of how Paul wasn't even planning on going to Philippi. He was headed the opposite direction, east to Bithynia, and yet God gave him a vision. And so Paul hopped on a ship and sailed west to Greece. This is the origin story for the Philippian church, and it's a good one. And God has seen fit to give us this history in Scripture forever for our encouragement and example. And so I want to put a question before us this morning. In what ways should we as a church remember and thank God for how this church was started and how it has grown and Lord willing will continue to grow? Uh, for those of you who have been part of this from the beginning and still now, or from the early days, 
we need to hear those stories and retell them as God adds unto our number. We have to keep that story alive because the planting and growth of a church is not something that any man does. It is something that God does. And therefore, the history of the church, the history of Christ's covenant, is a testimony to God's love and power to save. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. From what I know of the history of this church, and I I don't know all the details because I was not here, uh, but I think I can say that humanly speaking, uh, Joe Stout, along with a handful of you, others, planted this church. I know it was in Joe's heart to do this back in 2012. (laughs) I was still in college at the time. (laughs) And 10 years later, here we are. And there have been a lot of people along the way that God used to water and pull weeds and fertilize, and each one of them is worthy of our mention and remembrance, but ultimately it is God who has given the increase. And so we should remember and honor those who God used to get us here as a way of praising God. Every Christian has some story to tell. First, of how God worked in your life to save you. And second, how he brought you here to this church. We were just visiting with uh, the McDonald family this week before coming into membership. And I tell you, they have a wonderful story of how uh, both they met, Jeff and Sasha met, uh, but also how God brought them here. And my guess is that there are stories like that all throughout this room, and as, as I come to your house to visit you, as I will, um, I look forward to hearing uh, those stories. The elders look forward to hearing those stories, and those are stories that the church needs uh, to keep alive. We need to remember God's gracious providence. Uh, I have, uh, the story of how I ended up here is a crazy uh, story, it's, um, and perhaps I'll tell that uh, sometime. So we should practice telling those stories in such a way that God is magnified. Do you know how to do that? I would encourage you, if you don't, to take some time and just write out your testimony. Practice that. You're you're talking about the thing that God has done in your life to give you eternal life. That is a story worth remembering, recalling, and telling to the next generation. This, when we do this, it kindles love and joy and thanksgiving in our hearts so that we can say with Paul, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. All of us know what it's like to remember someone and it stresses us out. To have the thought of someone in that situation and you're like, okay. (laughs) Paul's able to say, every time I think about the Philippians, It puts joy in my heart. And isn't that the kind of people, the kind of church that we want to be? Continuing in verses 5 and 6, Paul tells us the reason for his thanksgiving and making requests to God with joy, and that is, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day 
until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We already saw that this fellowship in the gospel is a generous and mutual sharing of spiritual and material gifts. Paul ministers the word. He preaches to them. He risks his life for them. He prays for them. He sends workers like Luke and Timothy and Epaphroditus to establish them in the faith. And then the Philippians likewise pray for Paul. And more than that, they financially support his apostolic work. That might have looked like paying for his travel expenses, getting him a coat for the winter, buying parchment and other materials for writing letters. At the end of Paul's life, he writes this to Timothy saying, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. That's 2 Timothy 4.13. Paul's in prison. He's at the end of his life and he says, can you bring me my coat and the books and the parchments? And I think it is quite possible that some of those things that he asks for were gifts from the Philippian church, or at least funded by them. He knows that execution is coming soon, and he requests those gifts be brought to him in prison. That is what fellowship in the gospel looks like. Now in verse 6, Paul tells them of his confidence. He says that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, this means that what God starts inside of you, he will bring to completion. If you have been born again, if you have been given a new nature, if you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then you can be confident that although you may stray and stumble at times, the chief shepherd will not let you go. He will leave the 99 and he will come after you. That coming after you might be painful, but he will come after you. As Jesus says in John 10, 27 to 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. If you belong to the chief shepherd, no one can take you out of the father's hand. What can man do to you? They can threaten you. They can kill you. They can send you to your father. Paul is confident that these Philippian Christians will be kept and preserved by the power of God. And in our final verse this morning, verse 7, he tells them why. Verse 7 says, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, that is to say, it's appropriate and right for me to think this about you, Because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Why is Paul so confident about the spiritual state of these Philippians? We should note here that he doesn't just say this about all the churches. In fact, in Galatians, he says the opposite. He says, I'm fearful lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain, Galatians 4.11. So this is not to say apostasy cannot happen. Paul had seen it. His own companions at times abandoned the faith. Think of Demas, who fell in love with the world. 
So apostasy is not a hypothetical sin. Paul doesn't just say this for all the churches. He has a special and unique confidence about these Philippians, and there is a reason for this. Jesus says in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13 that there are people who receive the word with joy. They receive the word with joy. They came to church. They heard the sermon. They said, great sermon, pastor. I'm going to change my life. And then Jesus says, they endure for a little while, but then tribulation, persecution, COVID, hard times, those things come and they fall away. There are real people like that, Jesus says. There's also another category, some people who hear the word. They go to church for a time, but the cares of their job, the cares of finding a spouse, the cares of life after divorce, the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And so they become unfruitful. Maybe they keep going to church, but their heart is hard, and so they wither and they die. This is not the Philippian church. What makes Paul so confident that the Philippians are the good soil, that they are genuine Christians who will persevere unto the end, is that he says, ye are all partakers of my grace. Notice it does not say partakers of God's grace. Of course, all grace comes from God, but why does he say they are partakers of my grace? What does this mean? Well, the focus here is on how the Philippians have demonstrated to Paul their true and genuine love for the Lord, and they've done this by how they have supported the gospel in hard times. They've already endured tribulation for the last 12 years. Right? Philippians is written in around 61, 62 AD. So this is 12 years that Paul has known them. And all through that time, they have supported him time and time again. He says, in as much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. They know what it's like to suffer with him. Philippi is 800 miles from Rome. Paul's in Rome under house arrest. He's actually about to get out. But he's 800 miles from Rome. That's about the distance from here to Salt Lake City. And there was no cars or airplanes at that time, of course. And it would have taken Epaphroditus a month or more to bring that gift to Paul. That's a long time. That's dedication. And as we'll see, Epaphroditus is sick and he almost dies. And you, I mean, you're traveling with this gift for, <laughs> from Philippi to Rome. Uh, we, we travel as a luxury. <laughs> we go on vacation as a luxury. That's a very recent and new thing, right? Traveling, asking for traveling mercies was a real thing you needed to do because you might get robbed, you might get sick, you might die. There's no 911. AAA is not going to come change your tire. There's n- you're, you're out there in the wild. And so for the Philippians to give this gift, to send uh, to Paul, time and time again was a great sacrifice. And this sustained love and generosity is a fruit of the Spirit. This is not something that carnal Christians do. Okay? Maybe people give for a moment out of guilt because they just, all right, I'll, I'll give you something. Okay? That's not the Philippians. 
This is true and genuine love, and this builds Paul's confidence. He knows what it took for the Philippians to get that gift to him. And so when he sees that gift, whatever it is, it brings him joy. They have supported him, and that is what makes them partakers of Paul's grace. They're receiving a prophet's reward. They will share in his eternal rewards. Very few people are called to be an apostle, but the Philippians get to share in the apostles' rewards because of their giving unto him. So I'll close with a question of application for all of us. What kind of church do we want to be? If Paul had planted this church, what kind of letter would he be writing to us 12 years from now? Right? We're coming up on about two years in. In another decade, what would the apostle write to us? What trajectory are we going to be on? Would he be able to say about us, I thank my God upon every remembrance of Christ's covenant church, those saints? Or would he say, I'm fearful for you guys that my labor was in vain. The choice is ours. And my prayer is that as we continue through this letter, God will teach us to imitate the Philippians in many ways. That he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how you have loved us. We thank you how you have come after us, how you sent Christ to take on human flesh so that we could be united to God. Lord, I ask that you would cause your word to run to and fro in our church, in this county, in this city, in this state, that you would open our ears to hear your voice, that we would swear ourselves to you as our master and that we would be obedient to you in everything. We ask this all in Jesus' name, and amen.